Welcome to another episode of It Simply Isn't Done. I'm Barry Petrucci. I'm Just Davenport. Together, we, we are, are the Irreverent Reverends. From Portage Chapel Hill Church. This is the weekly sermon recap um, where you'll find the sermon um, from the Sunday before uh, with the scripture and then uh, we'll share some reflection. This week is the third Sunday in Eastertide. Pastor Jess Davenport was preaching on corporate prayer. Praying together. So the scripture was Acts 2, 42 through 46. And you'll hear that at the beginning. And then there's the message. Um, you should be able to find in the show notes uh, where, if you've already heard those things, where you want to skip to, the time mark. And we'll see you there um, for some reflection. through 46. Hear now these words. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to start with, um, you know, an imagination meditation. So I want you to imagine with me. I want you to imagine it's the beginning of summer, um, maybe... So this time, we'll do June 22nd. That's my birthday. So imagine it's June 22nd. Imagine you're in Boston. You're at Fenway Park. It's a nice, warm evening. You might not care about the Red Sox, but the atmosphere is lovely. It is the eighth inning, and you know just what to do. We get to the point in the song where you hear, Sweet Caroline. Good times never seem so good. So good, so good, so good. Wonderful, very good. <laughs> Likewise, imagine a new scenario with me. You're in an American public school, likely some years ago. The morning announcements come on. You are asked to rise and recite, I pledge allegiance. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, you all are good. Way to go. So these are both examples of ways we verbalize being community, right? They're ways we verbalize an identity. Now, we might bristle at that identity. I'm a White Sox girly, so you're not going to catch me at Fenway singing. 
Um, and as a Christian leader, I have serious questions about to whom and what we pledge our allegiance to. But y'all get the point. Speaking words aloud together are ways we make and profess some type of shared understanding, calling us into community. They help us make meaning, share our identity. Today, we're going to talk about corporate prayer, why it is we pray together. So this is part of our series, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, Growing in Prayer. Week one, I preached about how prayer is uh, different in different faith expressions and why it looks the particular way it does here in a progressive Methodist congregation. Last week, Barry preached about who it is we pray to, God, or rather, what do we call the divine being to whom we pray? And today, why it is we pray together, sometimes out loud. As someone who writes worship, I've thought about this a lot. Crafting words in such a way um, they might affirm something about who we are, right? There's a lot of great hopes and aspiration. Often, though, when I talk to you all or other church folks, um, there are a good many faith-filled Christians who do not love reading together aloud, <laughs> who do not love these pieces of liturgy, don't love standing up and having to say things. Some of us get so stressed about having to pronounce the words correctly in the correct cadence, we can't even really focus, and we wonder why we do it. If I polled uh, both services on what element of worship they'd like to get rid of, we're, we're, not, we're gonna skip passing the piece, because that would obviously be number one. After that would be some part of the liturgy, some part of the liturgy. I hear consistent feedback. People don't always understand why it is we do this. And it feels rote or it might feel confusing. And what that says to me is that we need to teach more about why our community says this is important, why it is we do this, right? So you don't have those questions about, I don't know, we'll stand up and say the same things together. Each week in service, we have some sort of liturgy some sort of formal, written, spoken, prayer, affirmation, call to worship, the opening liturgy, the Lord's Prayer, a confession, communion. This is all under the umbrella of liturgy. And an actual translation of that word is the work of the people, public work. The work of the people. Liturgy is something in worship that we do together. And I think then it's a helpful reminder, and I do this like once a year, so this is my time for the calendar year. I wanna talk about what our roles in worship actually are. Because I find that in today's kind of context of worship, we tend to think you all are the audience and we up here are the performers. There are musicians, you hear me speak. Friends, that's not what worship actually is. Right? That's not the roles in worship. God is the audience of our worship. God is the audience of our worship. We are all together worshiping God. We are all together praising God. I have a role of leadership. So does Barry, right? Kat does if you're here for the choir. Chad does with the music. So we're kind of part of the directors, right? The band is like the pit, <laughs> right? And we're here worshiping God together. God is the audience, so we all have a role of active participation in worship. Now, that understanding kind of frames how we do worship a little bit differently, right? Yeah. And it's important for us to think about that when we're considering 
What is the role of us talking all together at the same time? That understanding of worship, that understanding of worship will help us through that. Right? So given our roles, Barry and myself, and sometimes more of us, we write and we source liturgy. We'll often adapt something we've written before or used before or something that we find. There's almost never anything we find that we don't fiddle with or edit a bit. Um, Often, just frequently, we'll write something based um, on what we're doing in service. So we'll write it from scratch, and we'll have that based on our theme for the week. We write the pastoral prayer. We end with the Lord's Prayer. We've also started a readers and writers group here at Chapel Hill, and you'll hear them more. You'll hear them reading what they've written and their prayers and sharing them as part of the service. May 21st is confirmation. The confirmands are writing that service. It's the work of the people, the work of the people, what we get together to do. So in our scripture today, we have a snapshot of what some of that work of the people looked like, a snapshot of the earliest Christian church. These were still Jewish converts. They're like generation one of Christians. It's this beautiful, aspirational scripture of what it means to live in Christian community. I don't know if you all caught how many all and everyones there were in there. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Right? It was a wonderful Christian community. Whenever I preach that, I often think to myself, like, yeah, sure. That lasted a few weeks. <laughs> we, we are Christians, friends. We've been around them. Chances are there'd be a fight after a while. I'm also personally convicted, though, because, you know, perhaps that's the context in which I'm a part of um, and our nationalistic, rugged individualism that leads me to think that this isn't even possible. And I feel challenged by that. And I think it's something worth us considering, especially when we're talking about prayer. Because if I were to ask one of you about your prayer life, you would assume, typically, that I mean your individual prayer life, and people would respond about their individual prayer life. It's rare that someone will talk about how they pray with other people or corporate prayer as part of their prayer life, and yet, it is something we get together and do every single week. For some of us, it might be the most consistent prayer life we have, coming together to pray. So it's important that we think about that and what that might mean. So this was the beginning of the church. Um, They were absorbed in worshiping the apostles' teaching, and you'll notice they said the prayers. There's the, the article before prayers, the prayers, meaning there were standardized prayers, liturgy that they said. And I'm guessing some of us, if not many of us, have been to Shabbat or another um, Jewish worship experience. Some of those prayers might be the same ones that we hear today in Shabbat, these ancient prayers. It did not take long, however, um, before Christians had some uniquely Christian prayers. We actually have uh, sourced the oldest surviving catechism. That's a book on teaching of the church. I'm really nerdy about it. I'm a big fan. It's called the DDK. It is a first century document of how people came together to do church. So it was really for one specific community. They were uh, mostly Jewish converts, but, but not, entire, not entirely Jewish converts. And um, actually, within the last, like, 50 years, scholars have dated it to the first century. And they've dated it, they think, to the same community Matthew was talking to. So if you kind of have that picture in your head. Now, here's what's important about that, other than if you're a nerd and you like old things and primary sources. (laughs) 
it's important for us to look at what they were doing in that, in that part of liturgy, because you'll find things that we do today. The Lord's Prayer is in the Didache, right? So we saw that. We saw it sourced in all, um, in all sorts of languages. We heard it in the original Aramaic. People are saying that this morning all over the entire world in their native tongue. And I think it's really beautiful for us to think about this ancient prayer that our ancestors and faith have said for thousands of years, thousands of years, right? There are instructions for baptism in the Didache. Um, they have the oldest Eucharistic prayer that we have found. Um, and the Lord's Prayer specifically, it's kind of interesting because the Didache says you're supposed to say it three times. It doesn't say one. Just three times, you can get them done right in a row. You can just move through it or space them out throughout your day. But for early Christians, it was important to say the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Friends, these are important rituals. Rituals. That's one beautiful thing the church provides us. And I want us to think about rituals. Right? What, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Because chances are you have a ritual. I usually make coffee. Oftentimes, Tori makes it first, and then I get to drink it. I do the first three attempts at Wordle and then give up for a few hours. <laughs> right? There's a few other things I do that are part of a ritual. It's comforting. The rituals we have in church are meant to do that too. Rituals help us add meaning. Help us add meaning. So we have weddings. We have funerals. We have communion. We gather together weekly to go through some of these rituals because they help us make meaning of our lives. Humans crave tactile, verbal, auditory meaning-making within a community. Right? We would hold that we were created that way. We were created to crave that kind of ritual. And there are some churches that aren't a big fan of formal liturgy, but even those, they tend to have a liturgy, right? They have a ritual. They have something where folks can kind of find that space. And I get that for some of us, the liturgy we speak can feel rote. And I hear that. Sometimes it can be dry. I hear that, right? I write it. <laughs> I would challenge you, however, that it is not the words that are rote and boring, Perhaps you're so familiar with them, you're not even thinking about the words that you're saying. Perhaps you're thinking about your Meyer list, or what you have to do after this, or the fact that you just heard rain on the roof and it sounded really beautiful, right? The words that we have, if you, if you think about them, if you consider them, they're not rote, right? The words of the Lord's Prayer, they're not rote, and they deserve our full consideration together. Right? Even some of the liturgy we write, like they, it deserves our full consideration together because some of it might be really confusing and you might have to come up to us and say, what was up with that? We would love to have that conversation. We would geek out over having that conversation. And it's important for us to consider that and to think about that. I think about our communion liturgy, right? And here's what I know about us as a people. It might not be next week when we have communion, but there has been and there will be a time in your life where you need to hear a pastor say, our God is with you, and you need to hear your neighbor say, and also with you. Right? There are times where we need to be reminded of that because we, we can't find God on our, on our own. Right? We're, not, we're not able to find God in the moment, and we need to be told that God is still with us, and we need to hear our community say it aloud to us. Right? That's important. 
And I get it, it might not be next week, it might not be the month after that, but there will be a time where that happens. We don't say that same prayer, we don't say that same thing because we don't have any creativity, right? We say it because that's important. And we say it because there are weeks we show up hoping to hear those words bathed over us. And there are gonna be elements of liturgy or prayers or the hymns we don't all agree on. We might object to the theology and the phraseology, and most of the time it's smaller stuff. Right? Sometimes I will choose hymns. I don't agree with the theology and the hymns. I will still choose them because I know that for our community of faith, they help us make meaning. Right? I think of like my grandma making homemade noodles, singing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I don't agree with that theology at all, right? However, I think about the saints that have come before me that laid a foundation for my faith and I am reminded and taken back to the great cloud of witnesses that have come before us. I am able to do that because it was sung enough, sung enough together, it was familiar enough to take me to that place which is worshipful, right? Some of the things we do together in that space, we do them together because they help us make meaning. They connect with us in ways that are worshipful. They do that for us, right? And they help us form ourselves in the Christ body, here and now in this place with a unique call here to Portage and Kalamazoo and the areas beyond. And as I wrap up, I want to share another way. I know this is immensely important to people. Um, so I've been in vocational ministry for only about 13 years, um, but I have worked at a nursing home. And something that happens at a nursing home is that folks will enter hospice and they'll often die. Um, and, and anyone who has worked in these situations or these settings will likely say the same thing. It's a very common experience to have someone um, in the act of dying process have uh, either a pillar of their faith, an individual, or a faith leader come in. And they will say a very common prayer. They will sing a hymn. They will say the 23rd Psalm. Um, they will say specific Jewish prayers, whatever their tradition is. They will say those prayers, and even if the individual can't say them, you can tell that they recognize them, and within a few hours, they'll pass. Within a few hours. It happened time and time again. I worked in the nursing home my own grandpa was in, and that happened with him. And it's fascinating how these things we say each week, how we feel like they're rote, they give us so much meaning that they comfort us and strengthen us and fulfill us in faith such that we can relax enough to go on to be with God. Right? These help us make meaning. I'd like to end um, with a focus, a two-part focus this week for us. The first thing, this one's simple. Um, if, you're, if you're someone who's like, yeah, I'm excited, I want to pray a little bit more, I invite you to join um, Chapel Hill's prayer email. You can write on your Connect card. I want the prayer email. It's a really simple thing to do, and it's a way to pray with and for this community. You get an email at least like once a week, sometimes they're twice a week, from Shirley Freeman, specific prayer requests that people consent to have on there. And you can just pause for 30 seconds and say a prayer. And it's a helpful way to be connected. So if that's something you didn't know existed, now you do. And I would invite you to join it. I also want you to consider what are the words what are the rituals in your faith life that help you do meaning-making? Is it the Lord's Prayer? Is it Psalm 23? Is it something in entirely different, right? Is it the song of a bird? 
What is it in your faith life that helps you make meaning? And if you haven't given some time to consider that, I invite you to. Because there are important ways that we form our identity together, but you're also together even if you're doing it individually, especially if it's a piece of scripture or something that we say together, other folks that enjoy that. So I invite you to think through the rituals of our corporate life, the things we say and affirm together, and what brings meaning to you. And I pray that the ancient words we say and our heartfelt prayers continue shaping us into the people God is calling us to be. Amen. All right, we are back. Jess. Mm-hmm. It's quite a message. You started us out in Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts. I did. Why'd you do that? Yeah. Well, I was thinking um, about a particular place that has a particular identity because I could have chosen any ballpark and we could have done Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Um, but I was thinking more so of a, of a shared, very specific identity. And uh, there are really only kind of two categories I found where we have um, similar to church public singing or talking together. (laughs) There's not that many places where we get together and we sing aloud together or um, we, we just say and affirm the same things as kind of the general public. So I wanted to think through those two categories. We started in Fenway uh, with Sweet Caroline which in two sources said they do that in the eighth inning. If someone else knows, yeah. If someone else knows differently, let me know. Because um, that's what my reading told me. And then we moved to the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, very different kinds of, of corporate expressions of what togetherness. Yeah. Yeah. And as you, as you noted, Pledge of Allegiance is kind of a difficult one for a Christian community because we're pledging allegiance to something that is not God, and that's, that's problematic. But, but that really wasn't your point. No, I just want to make sure I communicated that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's fair to have, um, especially for Christian pastors, to, you know, to have us think through that. But it is, interestingly, um, you know, did you, did you actually have to say it? Did you have to rise and say it every day at school? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think there was a time where that stopped, but particularly post 9-11, I know a lot of school districts brought that back. I had it throughout my entire schooling. I was, you know, in that really small rural area and so it was expected um but i know that a lot of schools actually brought that back so there was a resurgence we definitely had it in new york city public schools um you know i i left in middle school but um up to that point it was opening of school every day was pledge of allegiance yeah which is interesting to think about because um kind of in line with the message it it becomes rote yeah and I, th- I think if Christians really did think about those words we were saying, we probably would collectively have some like, wait a minute, what's this about? Perhaps not. But. Which is a good thing. Anytime you can kind of pause on something that becomes rote and think about what it means. We had that experience today. We were talking about a, sa- a song that I remembered, uh, that was a, a Christian praise <laughs> song back in the day, and I remembered the chorus part, and uh, I loved it and thought we'd use it this Sunday, and then I looked at the the lyrics to the verses, and they were pretty awful. And uh, they were so we scratched, bad. We scratched yeah. that in a hurry. <laughs> but you know, but but I was thinking as you were doing that, um, having been in plenty of places where we've gathered in protest um, in community, um, 
the, the protest chants may be brand new to people, but by mm -hmm. the time the march is over, by the, by the time the demonstration is over, you know the chants. Yeah. Uh, you know what's being said and they become ingrained in us. Um, so, so they matter. So what you're saying matters. And um, so, so how does it relate to prayer? How does what relate to prayer? What you were, what you're opening. How, how oh, yeah, those public expressions of identity and meaning making and community shaping that we do in spaces. I think we would typically call secular, although we can talk about that another time. But in spaces that are not expressly religious and how we don't even necessarily think about them um, and how what they're doing is um, hopefully uniting around a particular identity and how that's really a lot of what we're trying to do in worship um, with with pieces of liturgy that we will you know say aloud and affirm together um, with hymns with prayers we're really trying to shape us into an identity and, and do some meaning making through consistent ritual. Yeah, and it's and it's not about this kind of mindless repeating of things that somebody else is saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and that and that I think that the church often gets accused of that. Sure. That all we're doing is trying to create mindless people who repeat. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not it at all. We nothing that pastors would like more than have people come back and say, hey, I was thinking about that thing we were saying, and here's what that meant to me, or here's what I heard, or here's a question I have about it. Um, that's, that's really what the hope is, is that we go deeper than, than what we're saying together um, in, a, in a way that might, in the moment, feel mindless, but it really is um, the community mind. Yeah, and us being together. And I think with worship, Sometimes people, I think, um, don't consider the craft of putting worship together or the fact that, like, we have a, you know, we have a table of folks that come together and do some of that verbal and visual communication. We have a sacred space team that uses the space to help kind of communicate themes. Like, there is a craft to putting that together, and our it has an arc, and it has a flow, and we're thoughtful and intentional about what that looks like, and... Um, you know, sometimes it's successful to what we've determined our goals to be, and you know, sometimes it's not. Um, and it would be interesting to hear what other people would have to communicate on whether what they found success yeah. to be or not. Um, but it is it is a crafted experience with um, all of those elements, hopefully reinforcing a theme or or something we hope that God is calling us into. And so, kind of a unveiling a little bit of the curtain of that as to why we do corporate prayer, I think is helpful for the congregation. Yeah, and it's really intended to be uh, multi-sensory, and, and probably in Midwestern Protestantism, we, we do it less so than in, yeah. other, in other contexts. But, you know, um, once upon a time, you walked into, into a church, and there would be um, what Archie Bunker used to call smells and bells. Smells and bells. Um, and this, so, so you're hearing and you're smelling the incense, um, uh, and there are tactile opportunities that we provide in the, in the mm -hmm. prayer stations. Um, and, you know, there's taste that goes with, with uh, communion as well, and there are other opportunities that we've offered in the past as well. So the sense that the, the sense of the service is not just about what we're saying, but it's, yeah. the, total, it's the total package. Yeah, we're, we're trying to, to the extent we can, and... <laughs> In 2023, while we're streaming with fixed camera, you know, like we have a lot going on. We have the same experience um, or the same service with different experiences for those that are streaming. But 
we do try to create and craft a worship service that will engage folks on multiple levels, perhaps not even explicitly, but will implicitly um, offer opportunities to kind of, um, like I said, enforce a theme or, or connect us to something. And some of that is um, the more explicit, the verbally communicated bits of it. And that's um, what I think folks have a lot of questions about sometimes. Like, hey, why is it that we do this? Like, why do we have this call to worship? That one's a little easier, the call to worship, because it's pretty it's pretty obvious what it's supposed to do. <laughs> call us into a time of worship. And, um, you know, like the way we have particularly the, the 9 a.m. service structured right now, we have um, announcements, and then we have the prelude, and then we have an introit, and then we have the call to worship. And it's kind of in builds um, to really give people space to allow themselves to be fully present to receive the word. And I think that's important and, and meaningful. And I'm not sure if you don't craft worship that that would be as expressly noticed, but I think folks feel that, that time and the ability, especially because some people will be like, well, I'm going to get my coffee and I'm going to listen a few moments after. <laughs> <laughs> Their prelude is the coffee getting. <laughs> well, I, I think to a degree, it's a challenge for progressive congregations where we tend to have, I, I think, a, a higher percentage of people that, that identify themselves as free thinking mm -hmm. and an individual. Uh, and I always remember Steve Martin back in his stand-up comedy days had this thing, uh, let's, I want you all to stand and we're going to repeat the nonconformist code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I promise to be unique. I promise mm -hmm. to be different. I promise not to repeat things other people are saying. Yeah. And then repeat. Uh, and that, so I think for progressive uh, congregation, it's, um, it, it might be offsetting for some folks. And then... For everybody, something will grab them mm -hmm. uh, in that in that collective experience, and and it's not uncommon for it to be after some kind of a community crisis where we come together and speak together. Yeah, and like that's part of the reason um, part of the reason we do the things that we do coll collectively is because there will be individuals that have experienced crisis among us, and what happens to one affects all of us, and we. We do some of that work collectively, even if you're not the person who has experienced a crisis because someone in the pews has, and they need their body of faith to be with them and, and affirming things with them or not. Um, and I think to your point as well, we were talking about this in the, in the uh, Belong Discover Respond class, which is our um, inquiry class when folks want to know more about Chapel Hill, about how progressive churches... Uh, as opposed to orthodoxy, we tend to focus on orthopraxy. So instead of right belief, we tend to focus on right practice. So that does kind of come a little bit to a head with some of our, our liturgy. So those of us who are crafting it try to be really thoughtful about what is it that we can kind of affirm together. So I don't know that we get into, we don't get into specifics very frequently. Like we don't have a creed every single week. Um, because I don't even know if you and I would agree on parts of the creeds, the historic creeds right. that we have, you right. know, that we both... Um, theologically agree with. So we tend to try to find things that we feel like are aspirational um, and can call us towards something either for that particular moment or who God is calling us to be as opposed to here's a specific belief that we all have to say together. Yeah. Or we say it, you know, the, the, the preface to the Apostles' Creed, for instance, let, let us unite in this historic confession mm -hmm. of the Christian faith. So we begin with understanding the context of this being a historic confession. It doesn't mean that every word we're yeah. saying now has got to be embraced 
at the same level by every person saying it. Absolutely. And, or, yet, yeah. we're, and yet we're part of the collective history. And that kind of how um, I talked a little bit about choosing hymns. Right? We do that too. We have to do that really and a lot of times each week. Like there's going to be, um, if we got everyone together and said, like, what theology do you feel? You know, we wouldn't end up with any sacred music. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, sometimes we just have to have to trust that um, and have faith that God's grace will work through that. And for us Methodists, that's generally pretty easy. We try to take out things that we know could be harmful to the best of our ability. Sometimes we let some things slip that I think we could probably be more diligent about. Uh, but, you know, really not causing harm is like the, <laughs> the baseline. And we can sure. kind of work from there with what enforces this theme and, and how do we see ourselves and um, what do we want this worship service to do for folks? How do we, how do we want the worship that we craft to help them praise, uh, praise God, lament God, confess to God, you know, whatever, whatever the particular act is we're doing. You, um, to move us a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. you, you brought in the DJK, um, early, earliest uh, that, that we have, um, earliest indication of a kind of a, um, well, it's more than a worship book as it goes to the structure of the community as yeah, well. Yeah, it's like a book of worship and a catechism. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, so fascinating piece. What, was there a place where you really needed to resist? Because it was a relatively short sermon. Mm-hmm. Was what, Did you need to really pull yourself back at that point? Because that was a rabbit hole. I was really hoping you were going <laughs> to go down. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I find that fascinating, and I find it, um, I find it really meaningful as a Christian today here in a particular location to know um, and to find comfort that there have been Christians that have gone through all sorts of you know, different iterations of human life and have said these same words, right? Or, or have participated in these particular rituals. I find a lot of comfort knowing that faith ancestors, um, you know, have prayed for our existence right now, right? So I, I personally take comfort in it. I, I would imagine others might too. I mean, some of the rabbit holes are just the more historic parts of just kind of um, teaching folks about worship and what early Christendom looks like. For me, it was a natural bridge from the Acts passage where we talked about the prayers, yeah. acknowledging that most of them were likely ancient Jewish prayers, some of which are still said today. Um, but that it wasn't, you know, it was very shortly after that we have um, the use of the Lord's Prayer and the use of Eucharistic prayers and, and prayers that get modified or, or are said in their entirety even today. And that, I think, is a helpful reminder um, that we're a part of something much bigger. The body of Christ is much bigger. We're called to do something unique here because um, we are finite. And uh, together we have, you know, we have this really big affirmation of, of what we understand, you know, to be the Lord's prayer, Jesus' prayer over us. And that's something that I think almost all Christians can, can get behind. And there are so few things these days. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I, I'm doing this study right after uh, our nine o'clock worship and I uh, was talking about corporate prayer and talking about how we don't do as much liturgy as many churches and uh, and somebody knew the church said oh we're here because you do liturgy mm. so so in their mind we do a whole lot more liturgy than the context out of which they come yeah um, and and there are people that 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 would love to have more who remember a time when you know we did the Gloria Patri every week mm-hmm. um, and the doxology was the same doxology every week. We didn't mess with it. You talked about uh, doing work uh, ministry in a nursing home mm-hmm. and, and, and the, the 
coming to the end of life and what people remember um, from their own liturgical life. Um, and I and I remembered uh, one of the many times when I've, when I've been with folks at the end of life, and it was that time when I was making clear to the family that if they hadn't given permission for this person to go, they would do that. And I was getting ready to leave, and I did prayer and anointing, and then I leaned down, and there, there was, had been no communication from this person for, for days. And I leaned down, and the last thing I said was, uh, and I said, I'll be with you. Mm. And he muttered, and also with you. Yeah. So that, that so deep, the, the connecting tissues of, of the faith that uh, come because rote sounds like a bad thing, but really what it means is that it, it's getting settled into our, our identity. Yeah. Um, and it becomes lovely when it's, when it's the, the, those are the things that are being held in that transition from this life to whatever the, the next life looks like. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be too graphic, but for those of us that have been around folks that are, that are dying, in the stages of active dying, often um, in the day, if not within the 24 hours, if not a few hours before, they'll kind of uh, rally a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that you'll have more movement and you'll have more communication. And that's kind of when, that's those are the moments when you'll hear these prayers and, and you'll hear these things said. And it's like you're saying, it's it's almost like they are stored in us on a cellular level. Like they're they're in there so much and in who we are, 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 we just need to express them before we can um, relax enough. You know, to go on to whatever whatever is next, which we would hold, you know, would be paradise with God. But it is, um, I think, an incredible. You know, if we're having a pro and con list of, <laughs> of these road things we say, like that is a huge pro to the extent that they they bring such comfort. You know, the pastor, my grandpa had a stroke, um, and it's very sweet. You said I was doing ministry because, in a way, I'm sure I was, but I was I was a kitchen aide. You know, I was in high school, That's right? Doing ministry. Yeah. Um, and so, I, but I would get to see my grandpa because he was there too, and he had had a stroke, and he he was nonverbal. Um, and so there was a pastoral change. He didn't, he didn't even know the pastor. He had no relationship with that pastor. Um, and that pastor actually had a very thick accent. Um, but like, even, even through all of that, it was literally just hearing the stranger he had never met say the Lord's prayer in, in that priestly way that you kind of have to show up with that kind of energy and him doing that as this beautiful act of service for my grandpa, um, to finally pass was like, Oh, like this is, you know, folks, some folks just need that. And that is a, um, those words are so important to us more than we realize. Good. Anything else? Anything you wish you would have said that you didn't? Um, no. You know, I feel like I was, you know, in retrospect, pretty direct about the, uh, perhaps it's not the words that I wrote. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps I would challenge you all to think about what you're saying. And I am. Um, you know, I think that's another thing to take from. I just want to remind people that um, worship is is not passive. You know, it's active, and we get to be um, loud. We get to have a mic. You know, it's like we're we're up in front of people, and I we have a particular role. Um, and our hope is that our leadership in that role allows people to actively participate and worship God, and can help create space to do that. Just a further encouragement if you're listening to think through um, what ways can you show up and um, and give your presence to each other and to God. Um, 
worship does require something, I think, from us. Maybe not every week. There are going to be some weeks where you're not feeling it, and that's okay. Yeah, and and I really think in those weeks it's where the, the Holy Spirit, Spirit does its work and mm-hmm. uh, helps you catch something quite in spite of yourself. Yeah, or just someone else can show up for you in a, in a way that you weren't anticipating because we are a community. That's really all I got. All right. So next right. week, we get two weeks in a row, Barry. Yeah. Barry preaching. Yeah, 7th and the 14th, I am preaching. And uh, this coming week, we're going to be doing aw. 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 So, yeah, all the ways that uh, we experience uh, God in uh, mystery and wonder. And uh, we're going to have lots of photographs that people from the congregation have offered as uh, things that have struck them visually as awe-inducing and and inspiring. Well, we will see you back here um, for Sunday and then when this podcast gets released on Tuesdays. All righty.